This is AgriFutures On Air, brought to you by AgriFutures Australia, driving innovation in Australian agriculture. When you think about Northern Australia and agriculture, you either picture arid landscapes with rogue cattle charging fearless station hands in battered jeeps, or you might just think of a green oasis that's still largely untapped. Both are true. The Northern Australian Food Futures Conference since 2014 has showcased the opportunities that abound in the top end and AgriFutures Australia is a major sponsor for this year's event. Today, I'll be talking to Paul Burke, the CEO of the Northern Territory Farmers Association. A bit about the conference, but a lot about how farming to our north has blossomed. But before anything can blossom, there's an awful lot of growing to do, and that's where AgriFutures Australia steps in to identify and help industries that are just emerging but is showing real promise to grow and prosper. Laura Skipworth helps guide these emerging industries for AgriFutures Australia in her role as Manager Emerging Industries, and she's here to tell us more. So Laura, what makes an emerging industry in the eyes of AgriFutures Australia? So an emerging industry for AgriFutures is an agricultural industry that shows great growth potential, but to reach a $10 million GBP per annum. So we actually class our emerging industries into three classes. We have a phase one, which is a GBP of less than $2 million per annum. And then we have phase two, which is a GBP of between two and $10 million per annum. And then we have phase three, which is a GBP of above $10 million per annum. And it's at that point, the $10 million GBP, that we believe we can start talking with industries about if they're willing to move to a levy. And I probably should clarify too, GBP would be gross value of production. So for those three phases, do all industries go through phase one, phase two, phase three? Yeah, so we can pick up industries at any phase. So we can see industries that will come in at at phase one and move through the growth maturity phases. Or we might pick up an industry that comes to us and they might already be at phase two. They even might even be at the later end of phase two or start of phase three, and they're they're really needing that last little push to get them to potentially be levied. And what does AgriFutures Australia do for them? So we do quite a wide range of things. So our main, obviously, investing in research, development and extension within these industries. And in terms of the actual projects and the research that we do invest in, it's quite varied. So we'll invest in anything from a research development and extension plan. So that's some of the first steps we do with our industries. So getting them together and for them to really understand what are the key research development and extension needs they need to grow, right through to breeding programs, agronomy trials, and really everything in between. So anything that comes into that research development extension that is a priority for that industry to grow, we'll look at investing in. So they'll come to AgriFutures, say, with a proposal saying uh, we need help with this aspect of our industry. We sort of have two approaches. So we do have open calls and different investment funding calls where industries might come to us saying that this is a particular priority that we need investing in and we'll work through our funding processes 
with applications. What we've started to do recently over the last few years is do a bit of a horizon scan, if you'd like to call it that, of industries that we might not have engaged with before, but that are out there and do some research into the data behind them and and which ones might have the potential and actually proactively going out and sorting investment in those industries. And what sort of industries are they? I have had a look at a bit of a list, but yeah, just tell me about the industries themselves. Yeah, so we invest in quite a number. So you've got your aquatics, so seaweed, sea urchins, then you move into your animals. So we've recently invested in camels. And then we have quite a number of investments currently in the plant space as well. So sesame, kakadu, plum, dragon fruit, or a lot of different tropical fruits. It's really wide ranging. And the number of industries we have that sit within each of those sort of plant, aquatic and animal shifts And so, yeah, definitely looking for new industries all the time. I imagine some of those commodities or industries, as you call them, like, say, the kakadu plum, it would be a tiny industry at the start and would really need that sort of kick along from, I suppose, a a bigger organisation to to give it that advice and that support. Yeah, definitely. And we find that by choosing that first investment really well, um, it can create opportunities outside of that for other investors to come in and see what the opportunities are within the industry. So as you said, it gives it that kickstart. Um, so even small investments for the development of an rd plan, we like to think that if that's done really well and prioritised well, an investor could pick that up and really say, okay, hey, I want to invest in Kakadu Plum or whatever industry it might be, and they know exactly where they should be going to put their money. Is the tea tree industry an example of an emerging industry that's gone through that process and now is an emerged industry, I suppose? Yeah, definitely. So tea tree oil and ginger are two industries that we actually have here in our levied program at AgriFutures, and they started originally in our emerging industries program and moved up and got to that growth stage that they were ready to transfer into the levied system. So, Laura, I imagine for farmers, diversity is something that many are looking for in their business structures, diversifying within commodities and other commodities as well. They might just find what they're looking for, really, in some of those emerging industries. Yeah, definitely. It's, as you said, diversity is becoming very popular and nearly a must to be able to adapt to different environmental conditions. If we can develop some of these emerging industries and can demonstrate them as an alternative for some of these more traditional crops or to be used in rotation with them, it could be very useful for that farmer wanting to add diversity into their production system. Now, you're attending the Northern Australia Food Futures Conference. That's a mouthful. So what are you expecting to see there and what are you doing there? Yeah, so we're really excited to be heading up to Darwin this year to be involved with the conference. So we'll be there for the whole conference. We'll actually have an exhibition booth, so be able to showcase some of our northern industries. But we are also, we have a session running on the Thursday And that goes through a number of different industries and we'll have speakers from a variety of our industries, including tropical fruits, dates, sesame, hemp and seaweed to give a bit of an insight into their industry, how their growth has occurred in the past. So I imagine if there's some people there who have got an idea about 
a particular commodity that perhaps isn't covered by Agri-Futures Australia's Emerging Industries section, that they'd be welcome to come along and have a year. Oh, definitely. We always love to hear about new industries that we could be investing in, all the different opportunities out there. So definitely, if you'd like to come and have a chat to us and, and let us know what you're looking at investing in or planting or whatever that might be, or you're already doing it, we'd love to hear about it. So there you go. There's a warm invitation from Laura to call into the AgriFutures Australia site at the Northern Australia Food Futures Conference in Darwin from the 17th to the 20th of May. Now, from the smallest of emerging industries to a rather large emerging slice of Australia, and I'm talking here about the Northern Territory, long the domain of stoic cattlemen and women, but increasingly populated by a range of farming enterprises from tiny Asian vegetable holdings to the new kid on the block, cotton. And the man who's going to tell us what makes NT Agriculture great is the CEO of the Northern Territory Farmers Association, Paul Burke. Hey, Paul, are you from the Northern Territory originally or are you yourself an import? No, I've been in the Northern Territory about four years. Originally, I came to the Territory as the Chief Executive Officer for the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association. And I did that for a period before I switched over and did a, a contract role in government for 12 months and then ended up in NT Farmers, where I hope to be for a long time. Originally, I'm from Tasmania. Our family had some sheep country down in Tassie, run a few cattle at, at one stage. And then I actually went into the hospitality sector and worked all over the world for better part of 20 years and then came back to Australia in the early 2000s and worked predominantly in Queensland in hospitality and then switched over to agriculture around the 2008-2009 as State Operations Manager for AgForce. So I've been floating around North Australia for a long time, not necessarily in the Northern Territory. Yeah, but the call of agriculture, it got you in the end. I think we all go back to agriculture at some point in our lives. It is such a great industry. It's such a dynamic industry and it's pretty exciting, the amount of change and, and the way our producers have to adapt. You know, it's pretty exciting. You haven't been in the Northern Territory for a long, long time, but you've been there a while. Have you seen any of that change even just in recent years? Well, I think in North Australia more generally since around the 2010-2011 mark, when the, the North Australia white paper came out, we started to to see enthusiasm. And I guess it's taken the better part of a decade, but we're actually starting to see developments come out of the ground now. So we've got some major precinct developments. We've released over 100,000 hectares of land for agriculture purposes in the last six months. So it really is starting to hit its straps. That's good to hear. And we'll get into that in much more detail just a little bit later on. But, you know, one of the things I had a look at when I was preparing to talk to you, Paul, was uh, just a government document, and I'm not even too sure how old it was, but I was actually quite surprised by the small number of farms and farmers in the Northern Territory. It measures in the few hundreds. Is that right? Is that still current? Um, we're a tight family. <laughs> we are growing. But a big family. Yeah, a big family. We're growing, and certainly it's becoming more diverse, I guess, there's been a few waves in agriculture in the Northern Territory. The early 80s and, and 90s saw a really big influx of Vietnamese growers coming across as refugees. And there's a really strong community. Uh, there's over 110 people involved in the Vietnamese Growers Association. So they're, they're really small holdings, 10 to 50 hectare type style operations. But they are really 
the cornerstone of, of what became a mango industry, a melon industry, an Asian vegetable industry, and all of that industry is now worth, you know, in excess of $500 million a year. And our ambition is to double that by 2030. Double it by 2030. And is that just in that particular sector? It's across horticulture. Currently, the cattle industry represents about 60% of the agricultural turnoff in the Northern Territory. So we think the plant sector, we can get to a billion dollars by 2030. And with incremental growth in the cattle industry, they'll probably get to somewhere around a billion dollars as well. So that will put the Northern Territory sector worth roughly $2 billion. So what is driving that growth? You mentioned before a plan that is some years old now. Has that been updated? Yeah, so a lot of that is around converting the best land from what has been traditionally cattle farming across to a higher value use. And that's been driven by some of the difficulties with other areas in Australia struggling with water and able to access you know, good quality water on a regular basis. One of our comparative advantages of sitting in the tropics is we have a very reliable rainfall, over 1.6 metres per year on average. And that creates significant opportunity around being able to have surety to grow your crops. So we're seeing a lot of interest from the southern and eastern parts of Australia to establish businesses in the Northern Territory or in North Australia more generally. So, so most of our interest is coming from Australia. So it's quite exciting. And what are those opportunities? So is it all in the exotic fruits and vegetables or is there also interest in more mainstream cropping? For instance, I understand there's some quite extensive cotton trials up there. Yeah, so Northern Territory Farmers Association championed a cotton industry over the last three or four years. We have a very ambitious plan to have roughly 50,000 hectares of cotton over the next decade. We're in the process at the moment of constructing a cotton gin, which will have operation by July 2022. So two years ago, we started with about 110 hectares of cotton, so very small, but it was a really important crop because it allowed us to ground truth and fact check whether we could grow the crop. And we got some remarkable results on dryland cotton. So we were achieving upwards of six bales per hectare in our first year. So that created a lot of interest in cotton in North Australia. We're up to about 4,500 hectares this year in the Northern Territory alone. Next year, we believe that will be somewhere around 10,000 hectares and then 30,000 hectares the year after. So cotton has certainly been a really positive story. But what becomes really interesting is what will those rotational crops look like? And we're currently doing some trials this year on what those rotations could look like. So um, trialling peanuts, trialling rices, trialling a range of, of broad scale crops that we can rotate with cotton. Are there any other broad acre crops that you, you're thinking of? Quite possibly, I guess. We've managed to secure a significant amount of funding in partnership with CRCNA, so the Centre of Research Excellence for North Australia, to do a major broad acre cropping project. And that will identify what the most suitable crops are, but it'll also guide us where those potential markets could be because of our isolated location. We do need to make sure that whatever we grow, we can get to market in a good condition. Yeah, that's important, isn't it? So what are you doing about that? Are there other plans that are going to deal with that issue? So currently we're doing a major supply chain study and looking at how we can create efficiencies in those supply chains. Whilst we're really remote 
in comparison to the rest of Australia. Our proximity into Asia is very close. Our shipping times into Singapore are half that of Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. So that does create some significant advantages as well. So whilst we have the disadvantage domestically, we have a massive advantage internationally. So once we can establish things on scale and set those supply chains up, we think we're in a very good position longer term to be able to service our near neighbours in Asia. You mentioned a lot of the money is being invested in the north is coming from the south, uh, southern Australia. Does that mean that farmers are actually jumping ship and moving up to the north? I think what we're finding at the moment is probably twofold. One's around diversification of location. So spreading that risk, people want to spread that risk across a large geographic area. I guess the other group of people we are seeing a lot of at the moment is through secession planning. So potentially one of the kids is coming up and and starting farming up here and the main farm is staying in their normal location. So we've got a lot of younger people in the industry up here, which is really quite a cool thing because it creates a level of enthusiasm that, that you sometimes don't see in the agriculture sector. You mentioned you measure your rainfall in metres, which you know makes all us southerners very jealous. But does it all fall at the right time or is that sort of a limiting factor when it comes to what you can grow in the north? So our rainfall predominantly falls from mid to late December through till April. Generally, from May right through till the end of September, we virtually get no rainfall. Um, now that creates some problems, but we do have very well-established aquifer systems and most of the water that, that's used for cropping is actually comes from aquifers. Land tenure is something that I also read was a bit of an issue there because if there's a, a change of use of a perpetual lease, that may trigger a native title claim. Is that an issue that you guys are working through? Yeah, it's something, I guess it's more broad than the Northern Territory. It's it's right across Northern Australia. Land tenure is very different to the Eastern and Southern states. There's very little freehold land. A pastoral lease traditionally was only allowed to you know, run cattle or grow grass hay for cattle. In 2017, we managed to get some amendments to the Pastoral Land Act that allowed for us to be able to do other pursuits on a pastoral property. And those pursuits are horticulture, forestry, agriculture, tourism. One of the the remaining impediments is, and I know the listeners will, will understand this, the size of the cattle stations in the Northern Territory are quite vast and it's difficult to buy land for cropping when you may only need you know, five to 10,000 hectares and a cattle station might be a million hectares and you're not particularly a cattle farmer, you just want those smaller parcels of land. So we're currently working on mechanisms to be able to subdivide and sublease land more effectively, which we think will create some significant opportunities around joint farming ventures and just straight landlord transactions as well. Okay, let's talk about the Food Futures Conference. It's on the 17th to the 20th of May. Who is that conference actually aimed at? So it's a farming conference as opposed to a farmers conference. And what I mean by that is what we hope to do with Food Futures is to influence decision makers to get better policy outcomes that will drive development. And so it's certainly farmers talking to regulators and regulators talking to farmers, but but it also includes conservation groups, traditional owners. So we try and bring everyone into the same tent 
and have some really challenging discussions about how we get better development outcomes whilst protecting environmental values. And what are some of the issues that will be discussed there? So, so some of the key issues will be talking about how we maximise development potential through the utilisation of water. With any new industry, it's always really difficult to put a timeline on a development. So by the time you get through a land clearing permit, a non-pastoral use permit that we spoke about just a moment ago, get a water licence, often that can take you know up to five years. So how do we streamline those processes? So we're spending a lot of time at this particular conference working with industry and regulators and conservation groups and traditional owners to try and explore some ways that we can expedite some of some of these approvals processes. AgriFutures and the NT Farmers Association are also running a tropical exotic fruit symposium on the Thursday and Friday. What's the idea there? Well, the idea there was to make title the biggest mouthful you could get. <laughs> um, so what what we're trying to do there is is to bring tropical fruit growers from across North Australia, so Queensland, Northern Territory and WA, to a central location to do some field walks to look at some of the R&D that's happened in this space, but also to have a conversation more broadly about well, what are the priorities for research and development? Where do we need to go to take this industry from, from what is historically a cottage industry through to more of a commercial production scale? where we're able to supply into supermarkets, supply into export markets and really hit our straps. And what are those varietals? You know, is it going to be durian? Is it going to be Ramatam? What what are those specific products that lend themselves to be the next mango industry worth, you know, a couple of hundred million in North Australia? I reckon every family in Australia should cut open a durian tonight and taste it. Beautiful. <laughs> yes, I think they should. <laughs> uh, Paul, look, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I understand we're going to be doing some more podcasts from the conference or about the conference more correctly. So thank you very much for giving us a good understanding, a good basic understanding of where agriculture is up to in the north. Thanks, Chris, and look forward to seeing everyone in the Northern Territory 17 to 21 May for Food Futures. I wish I could be there. Paul Burke, who is the CEO of the Northern Territory Farmers Association. And by the way, for those who don't know why we were laughing about durian, it's a very nutritious Asian fruit, but it does have one drawback. For many people, it smells terrible. Thanks for joining me today for AgriFutures On Air. My name is Chris Brown. You've been listening to AgriFutures On Air, a weekly podcast brought to you by AgriFutures Australia. AgriFutures Australia.